The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 1, 19-23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength? He exercised his power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Kay. If you have a Bible, turn in your Bible to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, that's about three quarters of the way through. There's also a table of contents at the front of your Bible, and you can find the book of Ephesians there. If you could choose any superpower, which would you choose? This is a a question that's been debated for years by my sons. So usually it starts with someone asking the question, then it gets into a lengthy, I'll graciously call it discussion, not argument, about the relative merits of invisibility, super speed, super strength, and of course human flight. What is it about superpowers that produces such passion and excitement? Over the past decade, 10 of the 20 highest grossing movies feature someone with superpowers. So why do stories about people with these special powers, why do they resonate so strongly? Could it be because we feel weak and vulnerable? Could it be that we long for power to make a difference? The character Superman was created in 1938 by Jerry Siegel, six years after Jerry's father died during a robbery. Some of the original artwork for Superman shows him rescuing a man from gunpoint, a man who just happened to look a lot like Jerry's dad. You know, that feeling of vulnerability, that sense that we are powerless to protect those we love, to defend the innocent, to stand up for what's right, to make a difference. I think that's what drives us to these stories of normal people, people like us, somehow discovering a superpower. And with that superpower, they're able to do the things that we wish we could, but can't. This letter was written to the first century church in the city of Ephesus, a church which seemed very vulnerable. This church was not large in number, especially in a city that was a quarter of a million people. The city was very religious, so religious that one of its main industries was idol worship. We learned that in Acts 19. When the Apostle Paul first stopped there on one of his journeys, he began to share the gospel and people came to faith. And there was at least enough Christians that the merchants, the silversmiths, were unhappy with their loss of revenue and they started to revolt in which they, they, they severely persecuted and, and terrified the Christians there. That was even a few years earlier. So just imagine if you're a Christian in this city, do you feel powerful? No, you feel vulnerable. This is often how the church has felt as it's faced persecution. Eleven of the twelve apostles were killed because they were Christians. Of the one that 
was not killed. He was actually boiled in oil, survived it, and then banished to an island in exile. No one would have looked at early Christianity and described it as a superpower. In fact, some of those religious leaders thought if they just left it alone, that it would, that it would just end on its own. It would simply die out, but it hasn't. It's grown. And though it often looks small and looks unimpressive, there is power at work behind the scenes. This morning, we're going to talk about the power that has worked for the welfare of the church for the past 2,000 years and the power that will support, defend, sustain, and protect the church until Jesus returns. If you remember last week, we looked at Paul's prayer that the church would grow in its understanding of who God is and what God is doing. And he ended that prayer praying for three specific things. And one of them was for the church to comprehend the immeasurable greatness of his power. I want you to look around at this group of people. Look, some of you are actually listening. I can see you. So look around at this group of people. You can do it. It's not awkward. This is not a powerful group of people. There are no politicians here. There's no one famous, as far as I know, no social media influencers. There's no titans of business or commerce. This building, as nice as it is, you realize it's one-tenth the size of the target they just announced they're going to build in Fuquay? Some of you didn't know that. But there is power here. There is power that does not come from our combined intellect, morality, or willpower. Verse 19 asks this question, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? If I could rephrase that question, I would say, what kind of superpower is working for Christians? And we find that answer in verses 20 through 22. The power at work for Christians, three descriptions. First is power that raises the dead to life. Look at verse 20. It says, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. So power and exercise are two terms that go together naturally. Just picture the college-age guy in the too-tight tank top walking through the gym saying, how much can you bench, bro? Right? This is power and exercise and he wants you to give an answer and you give him an answer and he may not take it at face value he may want you to demonstrate it so he's saying really how much power can you exercise can you demonstrate well God exercised his power we're told when he raised Jesus from the dead the resurrection of Jesus his ascension to heaven was a unique event in human history for 3 days and 3 nights Jesus body lay cold in a dark tomb this was not like when a person dies multiple times in the ambulance on the way to the hospital maybe you have a relative who has this story it seems like everyone has an uncle who this has happened to is they had a heart attack an ambulance picked them up and on the way to the hospital, they died three or four times. Each time the paramedics brought them back to life. See, none of our relatives were in the back of the ambulance without a heartbeat for three days. I'm reading a, a book about a sea voyage in the late 1700s that went terribly wrong. Early on this journey, they, were, they contracted typhus. And so 
within a few months of leaving, 20% of the sailors on this boat had died. And so if you die at sea, what happens is your body is sewn into a shroud and then it is given some sort of ceremony before it's, it's pushed overboard into the sea. The way they would do that is they would, they would sew the shroud and without being graphic, the final, the final stitch actually would go through the person's nose. And the reason they did this was very simple. They didn't want to make a mistake and throw someone overboard who was still alive. And so this was their, this was what they did. It was like the way to tell if, if you stick a needle in their nose and all of a sudden they do something, you're like, don't, he's not dead. Like, keep him on board. Right? It, was, it was their way of being certain the person had died. Listen, there's no doubting that Jesus actually died. So the gospel records uh, present multiple strands of evidence. Maybe you've heard the silly theory that Jesus wasn't really dead, that he was still alive after the crucifixion. Just think about those Roman soldiers and those Jewish officials. Do you think they would have allowed the body of Jesus to come down off the cross unless they were absolutely certain he was dead? A needle was not put through Jesus' nose. In fact, we're told a, a spear was thrust through his side, there was no movement on his part, just bodily fluids, blood and water pouring out. He was dead. Right? But he didn't stay dead. God raised him from life. Right? This is the power that everyone dreams about. It's the power over death. Just, just think about mythologies, right? about explorers that, that, would, that would look for a, a mystical fountain, that if you took one drink from this fountain, you would stay young forever. Or maybe Greek and Roman mythologies of these gods that were granted the gift of immortality. Or maybe just think back to the fall and our study of Ecclesiastes. And what was it that so plagued the writer of Ecclesiastes? He had everything you you wished for. He had money and success and power and on and on. But there was this sense that he could not shake that no matter what he attained, no matter what he gained, no matter how much he had, he was still going to die. And there was nothing he could do about it. But we're told here, God exercised the power that can raise the dead to life. How hard was it for God to exercise this power? Did God have to sweat and strain? Did he have to change out of his workout clothes when he was done? Did he need some recovery days? Right? Of course not. It takes you far more effort to open a pickle jar than it took for God to open the grave. See, God's power is not like a battery that's drained by use. So when you and I exercise, if you and I exercise, I don't know which word fits more, but when we exercise, we expend power and then we have to wait for a while for it to return. Just think that God has expended power that we can never dream of and he's done it ever since the start of human history and not once has his power ever been depleted. God gives power and never loses any. And this power, here's what's amazing, is working on behalf of his people. Think about what God is saying to us. When he describes the kind of power at work for his people, he describes it as power to raise Jesus from the dead. And so if you're in a culture where following Jesus means that your family cuts you off, and there's part of you that says, if I follow Jesus, maybe I'll die alone. God says the power at work for you is a power that raises the dead to life. 
In the next chapter, we'll look at this next week, the Apostle Paul will show us how the power that raised Jesus from the dead now works in us too. Not just for us, but in us, and it gives us new life. And because he was raised, we are spiritually alive to God, and we will live forever with the Lord. But I want to talk for a moment to the person here who's not a Christian. How will you handle your upcoming death? I don't want to be morbid, but I'm just... I'm going to try to help you face reality. You're going to die. I don't know when. I don't know how long your life will be. You don't either. But at some point, you will die. And what power can you count on to bring you back to life? See, there's only one who has the power over life and death. And we're told that victory over death comes through faith in him. Jesus died so that we can live And the power that raises Jesus from the dead is also the power that overcomes sin and shame and judgment. No power of this world, no moral effort, no religious willpower, no advancement in technology. Nothing can overcome your sin. Nothing that is except what we sang earlier. Right? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So the power at work for Christians is the power that raises the dead to life. Here's a second description of this power. It's power that reigns over all other powers. So in America, Washington, D.C. is considered the seat of power. Maybe you've heard that phrase on the news or civics class. This is the seat of power. Is there a seat of power that bypasses national boundaries? Well, maybe you'd think about the United Nations and say, well, maybe that's a seat of power. But if you know anything about history and civics and government, you know they don't really actually have any power over nations. And so what we have is we have in our world lots of of seats of power. They're, They're various sizes. They're various shapes. There's a seat of power here, and the territory that's controlled by that power goes a certain way, but then what happens is it bumps up against another seat of power, and this creates war and conflict. Think about the Middle East. This is the seat of power here and here, and they're claiming the same territories. So people fighting and turmoil and conflict because of all these competing seats of power. But here this passage tells us that there is one seat of power that not only encompasses the globe, but also the solar system, the universe, everything beyond. Verse 20 says, He exercises power in Christ by raising him from the dead, seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So it says there is a universal seat of power located in the heavens. Now the heavens is not a a geographic or political domain. It's not something that if we build a big enough rocket ship, we could make it to the heavens. The heavens describes the throne room of God. And it says that the throne room of God is far above all other throne rooms. Not spatially, but far above all other throne rooms in terms of authority and power. It's far above, like the distance on the org chart from the Silmar intern to the CEO, right? Far above. I want you to picture for a moment two college students. They're, They're starting their summer internship in downtown New York City, And the company they're working for is located in a skyscraper. And so they show up for their first day of summer internship and they're dressed in their fanciest clothes and they walk into the skyscraper and they go to the the reception desk, they present themselves, they're given these badges, they get in the elevator, they press the 30th floor and they ride the elevator up and they get off and they're escorted to their, their little cubicle 
their cute little desk, and this is where they will slave away for hours doing grunt work all summer long. But they're excited. And they, they work the morning, comes the lunchtime, and they, they go, they're like, let's, let's go outside, we need our lunch outside. So they, so they go down the 30 floors to, in the elevator to the, to the lobby, they go outside, and as they're going outside those front doors, they're, they're just talking about their enthusiasm, their excitement. How awesome is this, that we have our own desk in this skyscraper, this is so cool. Well, there's an older man out front who, who overhears them. And he hears their excitement, so he turns to him and says, what are you guys so excited about? And so they, they start describing to him how awesome this is, how excited they are. They describe this whole thing, and he seems pretty impressed. And so they say, they ask him this question. They say, they say do you, where do you work? Well, and he says, actually, I, I work in the same building. Oh, do you have a desk? Yes, I, I do have a desk. They said, do, do you have an office in this building, your own office? And he pauses, hesitates, looks a little sheepish, and then he points to the name on the front of the building. He says, well, technically I have them all. All the seats of power, all the rulers, all the deliberating bodies, all the congresses and parliaments, all the prime ministers and presidents, all of them belong to God. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His name is across the entire universe. So even the mightiest human leaders, the greatest conquerors in history, are nothing more than summer interns keeping human thrones warm until Jesus chooses to replace them. There is a deliberate echo of Psalm 110 here in verse 21. Here's what Psalm 110.1 says. It says, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, Jesus is the messianic king. He was promised at the moment of humanity's initial rebellion, and he's pictured throughout the Old Testament. And so we see here, having conquered sin on the cross, God raised him from the dead. He seats him at his right hand, where he reigns over all things, both now and forever. Now notice here in verse 21, there are four different words that are used to describe the powers that Jesus reigns over. It says this, rulers, authorities, powers, and dominions. These include human rulers, but the focus here is on invisible spiritual powers, the powers of the devil and his demons. We know from Scripture that, that our world is enslaved by Satan. He wields great power over people, rulers, and nations, and at times... It seems like his power is almost invincible as he crushes what is pure and righteous. But these powers will not win. They were defeated at the cross and their days are numbered and the kingdom of Jesus is ever expanding until the day when he casts the devil and his minions into the lake of fire. But notice as powerful and fearful as these demonic rulers can be, Jesus is neither worried nor intimidated. Right? He's, he's not pacing around heaven. He's not perched on the edge of his seat. Jesus is less worried about the demonic rulers than you are about the outcome of your child's t-ball game. Right? Jesus is seated. The victory is accomplished. And so what we see around us, all of this, all this effort against what Jesus says and what Jesus has done, these are just the dying moans of a defeated enemy. So brothers and sisters, 
We must not be anxious. We must not give in to feelings of fear about the direction of our country or the downfall of our world. I want to encourage you, certainly pursue righteousness and holiness, but do so not as a weak minority who is fighting for our lives against the invincible forces of evil. No. Here's what we do. We live with complete confidence that our risen Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, far above all powers, whether human or demonic. And so our confidence in God should cause us to live with a type of confidence that no circumstances of life can shake. Now, this is a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge for us to live with this kind of confidence. And I think it's primarily because we like to be in control. Why is it that we are more scared of flying in a plane than driving in a car, even though we all know that driving in a car is much more dangerous than flying in a plane. In fact, I researched it this week. How many times more dangerous is it to drive in a car than to fly in a plane? I bet you don't know. I do, and I'm about to tell you. 200,000 times more dangerous. You are, I did not get that wrong. It's not a typo nor misspoke. You are 200,000 times more likely to die in a car crash than in a plane crash. So why is it you're nervous when flying and completely confident when behind the wheel? It's because one of them gives you the illusion of control. You enter that flying tube in the sky, right? No one asks you to do anything except buckle your seatbelt. But you get behind the wheel, right? You're in control, or so you feel, right? We don't take into account all the things that we're not actually in control of, the other drivers, the conditions of the road, the condition of the car. But we like this feeling of control. And so what happens, right, is we're living in this world, and this world feels out of control. It feels chaotic and senseless, and so... That feeling causes us, we want to find some sort of human solution that will help us regain a sense of control. Like it feels so out of control, what can I do so I feel like it's a little more in control? So one of those ways, right, is I'm going to get super involved in politics because this world feels so out of control. Now I want to encourage you, be an informed voter. Exercise whatever stewardship Whatever limited stewardship God gives you as a citizen, but your moods, your outlook, and the way you treat people should never be determined by what's happening politically. So if, if Jesus really does reign over all other rulers, then it should be obvious in the way that his people are not blown about by every changing political wind. We are not victims, we are not pawns. We are not chicken little crying about the sky falling. We refuse to play that game. Instead, we rest in the fact that the power that is working for us is the power that is far above all other powers. So the question is, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? Well, it's power that raised the dead to life, power 
that rules over all their powers, and third, power that restores fallen humanity. So here we're going to see this. The Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 8. He shows us how Jesus fulfills it and then how it gives purpose to his church. So this is rich and thoughtful reasoning. And so we've, we've got to think clearly to understand what he's teaching. So you really need to engage here. I'm going to read verses 22 and 23 and then let's roll up our sleeves. We're going to dig into these verses together. Verse 22. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him, Jesus, as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Okay, to understand the power at work in Christians, we need to understand two Old Testament passages. So first, we need to understand Psalm 8, which is quoted here, and then Genesis 1 through 3, because that's the background for Psalm 8. So turn with me first to Psalm 8. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Psalm 8. The Psalm 8, in that psalm, David magnifies the name of God by rehearsing God's creation of the world and especially rehearsing how God created humans. So let's pick it up. Psalm 8, verse 3. Here he writes, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? So David here is amazed that God would love human beings, not just as a race, but individually. And his, his amazement stems from the fact that God is so immense and powerful that God used his fingertips to place the stars and planets in place. So how could someone with that kind of power love something so simple as a human being? And his wonder increases then in the coming verses when he considers how much honor and dignity that God originally gave to humanity. Look what he says, verse 5. Not only do you consider him, you made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea. So this is what amazes David. He says that mankind was given this authority by God to function as his representatives. We were to be princes and princesses under his kingly rule. We were, we were designed to extend his benevolent and gracious authority over everything he made. Right, But then something tragic happened. This is where we need to understand what happens at the beginning of Genesis. So Adam, the very first human, and his wife Eve, they were not content, not willing to function as a representative of God. What they wanted instead was to replace God. Like, I don't want to do his will. I don't want to follow his authority. I don't want to submit to his, his commands. Instead, I, I want that position for myself. I want to extend my power, my name, my will, my kingdom. So instead of ruling over the earth, as a reflection of God's gracious care for his creation, you have humans that start to destroy the creation, beginning with each other in the next chapter of Genesis. But before that happens, God steps in. And God makes this wonderful promise. He says that one day I'm going to send someone. And this someone is going to fix Adam's mistake and is going to restore the honor and dignity of the human race. And so by quoting Psalm 8 here in verse 22, what the Apostle Paul is telling us 
is that Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the promised redeemer. He's the one whose victory over sin, Satan, and death has begun this worldwide restoration that began in the garden. Jesus is restoring humanity to its God-given place as representatives who rule over his creation. Now this new humanity that comes from Jesus has a new name. It's called the church. Jesus is the head, which not only means he's the ruler of the church, it means he's the representative of the church. He is our champion. He has fought in our place, and now we share in his victory. Picture King David going out against Goliath, and when he defeats that giant, all of Israel joins in his victory. That's what it's saying here. When Jesus subjected all of the evil powers under his foot at the cross, now his people restored to the place that we lost We join in his victory. So just understand this. The power at work for the church is the power that restores fallen humanity from the curse of sin and restores the glory, the dignity, and the purpose we lost because of our rebellion. Let's stop for a moment. Do you see, and more importantly, do the eyes of your heart see and feel the grace of God in this work. Jesus died for us to fix what we broke so that he could give us dignity and purpose that we could never attain apart from him. And this is why in a different letter, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, a brand new humanity. The old has passed away. All that characterized the fallen Adam is gone. And see, the new has come. What was lost by sin was restored to us by Jesus. Now often, when we talk about restoration and redemption and salvation, we think of it in very individualistic terms. And there's a sense in which that is true, right? That you personally have to repent of your sin. I must repent of my sin. But notice here, The terms are not individual. It's not I have been redeemed, I have been restored, I have been forgiven. It's we. And so while this is true of us individually, the focus here is more corporate in nature. God has restored us, the church, to our initial role of his representatives through the work of Jesus. So the context in which you and I as Christians are supposed to live out the purpose for our life is through his church. This is why the the New Testament is not written to individual Christians. It's written to churches, to communities of Christians. Apart from committed, intentional involvement in a church, you will be unable to fulfill God's purpose for your life because he has restored us, the church, as his representatives. But what what does that mean, though? What does it mean for us to be restored as his representatives? It's described in verse 23 this way. Jesus fills his church with everything that fills him so that we can go out into the world and fill it with his glory. Jesus fills the church with everything that fills him so that we can go out into the world and fill it with his glory. Just think about that chain of events. Jesus fills the church with his fullness. So what is 
true of the nature and character of Jesus, he makes true of his church. What fills Jesus? I mean, there are so many things, but they certainly include love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus fills us with this. I mean, do you see that in your life? Do you see that in our life together? Are we experiencing it? Are we living out what he is doing in us? So as he fills us with his fullness, here's what happens. We look more and more like him. Think about how Adam and Eve's creation was described. God says, let us make man in our image in our likeness. So they were his representatives because they looked like him. But then sin comes and all of a sudden they don't look like God anymore. They look nothing like him. Love, joy, peace, patience, none of that is true. But Jesus comes and what Jesus does is he starts to reshape this people, this church, into his image. He makes us look more and more like us so that we can then resume our work of going out as princes and princesses, extending his kingdom everywhere. So what's then our responsibility? If he's restored us as his representatives, what's our responsibility? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Like take the image of God and the fullness of Jesus into every corner of the globe. Sounds a lot like what Jesus told his disciples before he ascended to heaven, right? He says, go and make disciples of all the nations and I will be with you, filling you everywhere you go. You shall be my witnesses after the Holy Ghost will come upon you, will fill you, not just to Jerusalem, but ultimately to the ends of the earth. So this is our responsibility. We take the image of God and the fullness of Jesus everywhere we go. Now, that's a big, big command, isn't it? To the corners of the earth, every people, tribe, tongue, and nation, will this happen? Yes. And that's what he wants us to see here. How in the world could this possibly happen? Because the power that redeems fallen humanity is the power at work to make this happen. We know our mission to fill the earth with the message of Jesus will be successful because God is the one who does it. In the book of Daniel, the king of Babylon has a dream. And in his dream, all of the major powers of the earth are represented as a statue. And this begins with his kingdom and Babylon goes all the way through Rome. And it's an immense, it's a powerful statue. It's if we told a person of power, they would think something like this. It just screams power and authority and might. But what happens to the statue is we're told a stone comes and hits the statue and pulverizes it into such fine dust that it's just blown and scattered and no one can find it. Then Daniel 2 verse 35 says this, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is how we know it will happen. The kingdom of Jesus Christ will fill the whole earth as his church spreads his life to the nations. Maybe you've said or heard someone say that the church is the hands and feet of Jesus 
That's what this passage is teaching. The means by which Jesus fills the earth with his glory is through the church. Just like our brains tell us to pick up a spoon or our feet to enter a room, Jesus tells us what to do and we act on his behalf. This church, by its very nature, is entirely dependent on Jesus. Without the head, if we're cut off from Jesus, there's no life here. And so we're here, right, brothers and sisters? We exist to do his will. We exist to follow his direction. We exist to accomplish his plan. This church is his church. So what we are supposed to do is we're supposed to represent the interests of Jesus and we do it like Jesus would do it. So what characterizes Jesus is supposed to characterize us. That's sort of overwhelming, isn't it? In fact, if you know much about your own heart, And much about your own struggles, you might say that seems impossible. How could we do what Jesus is supposed to do in the way Jesus would do it? I mean, how can you and I do the work of Jesus and do it with the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus? Well, this only can happen if we're united with him by faith, which is what chapter 1 has been all about. If all these blessings from Jesus have come to us, then then the power to do what Jesus says in the way Jesus would do it comes to us through him as well. It's the power of Jesus that animates the people of Jesus to fulfill the mission of Jesus. Remember in high school, I saw this sweatshirt that somebody was wearing and it had an illustration of what looked like maybe a teenager dunking a basketball. And underneath this illustration of the teenager dunking was the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So apparently, if you trust Jesus enough, you can dunk a basketball. I'm still waiting for Jesus to empower me to dunk a basketball. See, Jesus empowers us to accomplish his work. That's not some grab bag of promise that I can do what I want and just claim the name of Jesus. It's saying this, that Jesus empowers his people to represent him, to spread the good news of his salvation on the globe so that people will experience the blessing of redemption and the glory of Jesus. We can do all things Jesus wants us to do because his power is at work in us. Many years ago, I sat in the living room of a pastor in the Czech Republic and his father told us stories about being a pastor under communist rule. And there's one particular story. He talked about driving a van, and the walls of the van were literally filled with Bibles. And he was driving this van into a, into a different village, different community, where, where the Bibles had already been taken by the communists. And so he was, he was smuggling these Bibles there. Under the nose of one of the great superpowers of the time, this ordinary faithful man defied the authorities to spread the gospel. It's a remarkable story. I just remember thinking, if someone were there and they were looking at the USSR and this pastor, and you asked them, who has more power Right? Survey says 100 out of 100 answer what? Well, clearly, it's the Soviets. I mean, the same was true in Ephesus. Who has more power, the church 
or Rome? Who has more power, the church or the the merchant guild with all of their money? Who has more power, the church or these pagan priests serving in these enormous temples? (laughs) But what seems to be true, what looks to be true, is not always true. The church of Jesus Christ has power beyond what anyone can see or fathom. Will look small and insignificant, contained to superpowers, right? Has true superpower. Who else has the power to raise the dead to life? Who else has the power to reign over all their powers? Who else has the power to redeem an entire fallen race? Only Jesus. So let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, this week you may feel weak. Maybe there's a particular sin that seems to keep gaining victory. Maybe you're overwhelmed by life and all the struggles. Maybe you feel powerless and you wish, oh man, I wish I had superpowers. I want to pray for you or the Apostle Paul prayed for this church. And he prayed that they would see And their hearts would come to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to those who believe. Let me pray now. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. This week they will go out into a world as your representatives. Your fullness will be filling them. They will be on a mission to live out the gospel in a way that testifies to your wonder Lord, they they will go out desiring to be fruitful and multiplying disciples. Lord, and they will feel weak. And they will feel their own weakness. They will feel their lack of power. And they will be tempted, as I so often am, to think they can't do it. It's just too much. It's just too big. It's impossible. Lord, I pray that the eyes of their heart will be opened. That they may comprehend what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your mighty strength. I pray that you'll do this in them through Jesus, our Savior. I pray in his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.